Hey there, I am Barb Higgins, and this is A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumph, and tragedy as I continue to retrace my steps under what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. By doing so, I hope to not only help myself, but to bring purpose and possibility to those who listen. If you are ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, then tie, buckle, face up, or slip on your shoes, and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here welcoming you to episode 123 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So I'm looking as I'm recording, I'm leaning over right now if you can see me, I have a picture behind me of Mrs. Peterson, Rachel, and Molly. So the way I'm sitting, I I just see them peering over my head. (laughs) Anyway, as I record this, it's the end of December and I'm wheezy and I'm cranky and my eyes are itchy. (laughs) What a great visual. We're in the throes of kitchen renovation. And as always, so many things in my life are a metaphor for life. It's not about the thing that's happening. It's about what it represents in your life. And so with a house as old as mine, it was finished being built in 1905. It's now 2023. Well, no, 2024. So that's 119 years old. That's not a new house, right? And so with every layer you peel back is a new story. And we've had to make a lot of changes in the plan and the organization and how it's all going. So Right now, we're in the gutting phase, but when you gut something, (laughs) you find all sorts of things inside that you didn't know were there. So I'm sitting in the yellow room, and I know this is a bit jumpy, and so I'm looking at smooth walls, I'm looking at a ceiling that I know we replaced, and new light fixtures, and freshly painted woodwork. I'm looking at all the things that I see every day when I walk through this room, but I know that if I were to knock a wall down, behind this nice, freshly painted yellow wall would be insulation and maybe a dead critter and maybe an old newspaper and maybe underneath the paint would be some old wallpaper. There are so many things hidden in the walls of a house. It's just like a story, but it's also like an onion and you peel it away and there's a new layer and you peel it away and there's a new layer. So I already recorded this episode and I did a crappy job and Kenny came home in the middle of it and I didn't really know what I was talking about. Here I sit, starting over, episode 123, round two. And what's fresh in my mind right now is a conversation I just had with Eric, our carpenter. So we've pulled up the floor. So when we bought the house, there was a pergo floor, which was brand new. It was installed probably 1999, 98 maybe. And then underneath that is your classic Brady Bunch floor. And if you look at my social media, I have a on my Facebook page, I have a kitchen album with some progress on our kitchen. It was classic yellow, yellow gold, you know, tile shape vinyl, right? Underneath that, is clearly something from like the 1950s or 40s. It mimics like a marble floor. So it's dark in the middle and it has like a lighter color around the edges of the room, like up near the wall. It's also sort of some rubbery material. Under that was some sort of insulative sticky stuff. And under that, hardwood. So not beautiful hardwood like you'd find in a living room or something like that, but, but wood, a wood floor. And it got me just thinking about the process of doing our house over. So every conversation I have with my designer, Taylor, with Eric and Mark, the people that are building and the electricians and the plumbers is how do I maintain the integrity of the house? I don't want to just gut the house and put something brand new in that isn't authentic, right? I want it to look like it looked when it was built, or I want it to be consistent with an old house. I don't want, you know, track lighting and all this fancy stuff because that's not what would be in a house like this. 
Except as I peel back every layer, as we look at what's underneath one layer of wallpaper or behind the plaster or under the pergo floor, what I find is that the people that built the house and lived in it for 85 years had no trouble just slapping on something new and shiny over whatever was underneath it. There wasn't a lot of maintaining integrity or keeping it authentic. As things got modern, as new conveniences were invented and came along, they were slapped in. This house was just lipsticked and rouged over and over again. And so I got laughing with Eric about it. Like, like, wow, here, I'm so worried about the integrity of the house, but everything that's been done to it was just slapped on top of what already existed. It just made it pretty, right? It didn't really update it or, or update it in a way that was authentic to its originality. Then we got talking about the energy that houses have, and he's a builder and he's a creator. And so he gets very caught up in the energy that the house brings. And I'm a firm believer in that. I think everything on earth has energy, right? We're energy. Energy is infinite. And so he gets, he gets a sense of feeling from the things that he does. So we had a plan on how to sort of quasi level out the floor, right? It's an old house. It's settled and sunk and there's been wear and tear. And so we have all these different ideas on how to level the floor. And as you peel away a level, you see that underneath it's not level that this has five layers of stuff and over here it's only three layers of stuff and what have we done to make the floor feel like it's a level floor? All sorts of interesting discoveries. But the bottom line is our remodel of the kitchen isn't just slapping something pretty on top of what exists. It's really, it's really taking apart what exists, looking at how it was put together, feeling the energy, reading the story, and then recreating something beautiful in its place. So when the kitchen is all done, of course it will look brand new, but it will also look like a kitchen that belongs in an old house. And we got talking about personal change and, and how so much of life is hiding what we are. You wake up in the morning and you drink coffee to wake up and you wash your face and you blow dry your hair and you put on makeup and you put on clothes and deodorant and you perfume yourself. And, and the version of you that leaves the house is just a covered up, pretty up version of the original you, which is underneath. So the hardwood floor is who you are, and the pergo is what you carry into your life. And it just got me thinking, and this, was, this conversation was after my initial recording of this episode. So I've been having a really hard time, and surprise, surprise, I'm often having a hard time. This doesn't, won't make any of you think I'm not okay. I'm fine, and I'm struggling. And a lot of it has just been same old, same old. Like, you know, when I go back to the people in my life and the things that frustrated them about me, it's the same thing, right? It's saying I'm going to do this and then not doing it, setting these big goals and not following through, complaining about the same things year after year after year. And I realized that's what I do. And it got me thinking about fear of the unknown and how it's easier just to slap something pretty on top than it is to take down the wall and see what's behind it. It would be much easier. Kenny and I talk about this a lot with our kitchen. We could have just painted the walls. We could have gutted the pantry and just rebuilt the pantry. We could have just created a kitchen in the existing kitchen and left everything the same and made a better kitchen for ourselves. It would have worked just fine, but it wouldn't be what we're going to have. It wouldn't even be close. Would we be fine with it? We would indeed be fine with it, but it wouldn't last the next 50 years like this kitchen will. So I got to thinking about me and the things that I wanted to talk about in this episode and the books that made their way to my little pink chair that's next to me in this messy, messy room in which I sit. And how I started an episode and was all over the place. So I'm recording this just before the new year. And as many of you know, I completed the 75 hard and a 90 day sort of reset diet wise. 
And that all culminated at the end of September. So October, October, I really maintained the sobriety. I maintained the eating well. I really truly didn't waver in October. November and December rolled around and now we're getting into holiday get-togethers and we're getting into cocktail hours and meeting up with friends and Christmas cookies and Thanksgiving turkey and all the different things that accompany the holiday season. And so I have not been as strict with my diet. I haven't taken supplements in I don't know how many days. This morning, my hair is all coarse. When I do my, my supplements and my shake every day with the collagen in it, my hair feels like I'm 16 again. So I realized, geez, Barbara, you know, you, you have the ability to do these things. And then when, when the pressure's off and you don't have to do it anymore, it's easy to stop. So my conversation with Eric around the floor and what's behind it started when he said, come here, we have another change of plans. So we had sort of shimmed up the main kitchen floor, but the pantry floor and the bathroom floor were a whole different story. Even though it's sort of part of one big giant back of the house, the bathroom floor, when we took the bathroom up, didn't even exist. It's like, how did we not fall through every time we stood in the tub, right? And where the toilet is sinks down. So this moisture, you know, you've got water going through pipes. You know, if the, if the toilet ever overflows and you wipe it up, any room that has water in it is going to have moisture. And then you have the pantry. And who knows what the pantry and the bathroom were before they were a pantry and a bathroom. But they were something. So we were looking at the wood floor. And as Eric started to sort of decide how to lay the, the plywood over the existing floor, he started looking at it. And so he pulls up a piece of wood. And I wish I had it to show you. But it was, think of a long piece of hardwood. And if you looked at it lengthwise, looking up the length of the wood, it, it scooped in. It was like, it was almost like a little, like a half a pipe, like a half pipe, right? It dipped in and it was super, super thin in the middle and wider on the sides. And then the whole thing was, was narrow in the middle and wider on, on the other sides. I know that makes no sense, but it was clear that there was a pattern of wear and that the pattern of wear looked like it had to do with water. So when I think of what happened in that room before the two versions of the tile floors went over it and then the pergo floor, I'm sure buckets of water were brought in there. I'm sure, I'm sure that those floors saw water. I'm sure they were mopped with a, you know, a bucket full of water. That's, you mopped a floor every day in those days because germs were so prevalent and there was no such thing as an antibiotic. And housekeeping wasn't to make your house look pretty. It was to keep you from catching something and dying. But the wear of the floor was just so unique and just so interesting and just so cool. So we had to read, you know what? I, I have to pull all this up. Now I'll figure out how to level the floor. So now what I look at when I walk into where the pantry was is the original boards that were put down on top of the basement in 1905. And that is the surface upon which the new entryway and mudroom will be built. There's something just stunning about it. There's something real about it. There's something transparent about it, right? You can't deny it. All the layers have been pulled back. If we pulled that up, we'd be looking into the basement. Every single layer has been pulled up. So we stood there just sort of contemplating what happened on that floor to make it wear that way. You know, why did it wear out so much there compared to other places? And I mean, some of it makes sense. Where you could walk in the pantry was a very small area. You could walk to the sink or you could take a, a right-hand turn and go to the dishwasher or the cupboards and then turn around and open the drawers. It's all very obvious, you know, why it would wear out foot pattern that way. But where did the water come from? So as I was walking away from him and trying not to feel frustrated in my chaotic house, I realized that I had to start this whole episode over because what I'm trying to do with myself as we go into 2024 is pull back all the layers. 
I don't want to sit here in a year from now and still not have a Molly B foundation and still have a house full of boxes and bins of junk and important things binned away and still have no office in my home that I can work out of and still feel like I'm running around 24 hours a day, seven days a week, doing all these things that keep me from doing what I say I want to do. I remember shortly before Molly died, I was walking out of the back door onto the porch to go to wherever I was going that day to work. And I just felt like I was going to explode. And I remember thinking in my head, Barbara, you can't keep going this way. You can't keep going this way. And my big changes then were quitting the job, getting away from Doug, deciding to go to, to be with Roy. That was what was coming. And we got, Kenny and I had gotten the apartment, but I was just ready to explode. And I don't know that those decisions would have been right. I don't know. But had Molly been alive, I would have followed through on it's time to make a change. And then my life exploded and nothing changed. I pulled in and, you know, got back in the pickle jar, right? Closed it. I found myself in a pickle. I've had a really hard couple of weeks, a really hard couple of weeks. I've talked a lot about being angry and I can talk about it all I want and I can say the words and, and everything else. But when I continue to take part in the important things, but give them no time to process, I talked about my Jello Time shirt. Jello time for me isn't just the physical slowing down. I just have to slow down and let things sit. I have got to stop filling my life with running around. So this episode will air on January 9th. I have no idea. I'll be nine days into whatever I decide to do between <laughs> now and January 1st, which is just four days away. But I know that I'll be back into the 75 hard. I'm doing phase part two, phase one, which recreates the five tasks in the 75 hard. And it adds two more. It adds a cold shower. <laughs> and it adds three set things. So you choose three specific goals and you spend 10 minutes a day on each one of those goals. For example, one of mine, I think is going to be getting the TV out of my room. So maybe what I do is I unplug it. Like I don't watch it in my room. No more TV in my bedroom. I didn't grow up with a TV in my room. I didn't have a TV in my bedroom until I got with Kenny and Kenny grew up with a TV in every room of his house. And so that's just his reality. So that would be an example. Another one might be like, for me, I really want to get all my gymnastics movements in CrossFit. So every day I work on one gymnastics movement for 10 or 15 minutes. So maybe it's pull-ups, maybe it's toes to bar, maybe it's double unders, maybe it's walking on my hands. I work on something. So you add those two things get added into the 75 hard. And then actually a third one gets added in, which is 10 minutes of visualization. So I have to sit down and picture it choose something to picture and picture it. This might be easier for me than meditation. I don't know. I know that when I wanted to break five minutes in the mile, I put it on my wall, 4.56, and that's exactly the time I ran. So I looked at it every day. It's the first thing I saw when I woke up and the last thing I saw when I went to bed. It was on the wall in my bedroom across from where I slept. So the visualization. So these are things that get added in and you only do it for 30 days. And at the end of 30 days, you can stop you know, unless I'm continuing the actual 75 days of the 75 hard, but it gives you 30 days, 30 days to sort of focus on those things. Grace is going to do it with me. I don't know that she'll do the same rigidity of the 75 hard. She's never done the 75 hard, but I would love for her to set up something for herself that she can feel good about and notice the changes that I noticed right away. That's where I came to. That's where I came to here is that, is that I'm ready to explode. I'm just angry at myself all the time for not following through and doing what I say I want to do. One thing I thought of is that I just take a month off from everything. Like I get all my podcast episodes recorded ahead of time. I write four blogs. The only thing I would do is write my emails because those are in real time, right? I, I get everything ahead of time. 
And then I just stop. I just stop. I don't coach CrossFit. I don't do my online meetings, nothing. All I do for the next month is this house. I go through every room. I get rid of everything I don't need. I set it up the way I want it to be so that the Molly B Foundation can go. And actually, the only thing I work on is that. The one thing I work on is Molly B. And the rest of it just disappears for me for a month. And do I want to do that? No. Coaching CrossFit is my only source of income right now. But I'm never going to make this podcast make money if I don't focus more time on it. I'm never going to make the Molly B Foundation big if I don't focus more time on it. Do I sound all frenetic and rambly? It's because I am. I've had the hardest day. And there are times when I think these episodes need to be all well-planned out and organized. And, and then there are times when you just need to hear it right out of my mouth because today, December 27th, 2023, I, I'm ready to just jump out of my skin. That's how I feel right now. So <laughs> before this eye-opening conversation about peeling back the layers and am I gonna just put on more lipstick and rouge and make believe I'm fine or am I gonna just fucking do it? <laughs> My initial idea for this episode was to talk about recording Motherland. And when I think about where I am today, I realized that recording that book is a huge piece of why I'm so messed up in my head right now. I had to read the book. And I know I've read chapters of it, and I'm going to read some of it today. But to sit in a room, a dark, dark studio room with headphones on where I can hear my voice inside my ears. And there's the book on an iPad in front of my face, and I have to read it all day, chapter after chapter after chapter, no break. There's no break. You break to pee and eat lunch and drink water, but I don't walk away and come back. I read 26 chapters the first day and 14 the next. I got the whole thing done, which yay for me. Give me a round of applause because that was huge. She scheduled out six, six recording days for me and I recorded the whole book in two days. So I feel like I have a, na a knack, like a gift. I did. A, I was able to do a really good job there. But I have had alcohol almost every night since then. No more than two drinks, maybe three a couple of nights because I don't want to get drunk and I don't want to feel that uncomfortable. But it put me right back in that mindset. Not Well, I guess it's a mindset, but right back in that place where I hurt so much, I just, I hold on as long as I can and then I just need to relax. And that's eye-opening to me because I feel so much better when I'm not having alcohol in my life at all. Here I sit now with the, with the four books next to me. I keep looking down if you're watching me. The four books next to me that I had brought in and talked about in the first round of this podcast episode. So first things first, if you ever write a book, make sure you record it yourself for Audible for any online listening company or whatever, because recording Motherland, as painful as it was, was an amazing experience, an unbelievably amazing experience. And quite honestly, I'd like to market myself as a book reader for Audible because I'm good at it. I did a really good job and it was enjoyable and it was a process that, that I grew from. Gracie and Kenny and Jack went up with me. We spent two and a half days in Burlington, Vermont. They had a blast. They went to the, a science center there. We were right on Lake Champlain. Downtown Burlington is beautiful. We really had a good time and I feel like it would be fun to go back there. I also met Mary Catherine who voiceover Vermont is her business and it was an unbelievable experience. Hopefully by the time you're listening to this, I've already posted some reels on my Instagram and my social media, <laughs> something else I, I claim I want to do and then I don't. I'm sitting here now with a little bit of, of revitalization. So here's what I did after the conversation with Eric. I came upstairs and, and, I'm, and my house is a disaster. We have no kitchen, so there's just shit piled everywhere, but it's chaos. And so if, when you live in chaos, your mind is in chaos. None of my rooms look okay to me. 
So I'm like, you know what? I need to make my bedroom better. So I dusted it. I swept him off the floor. I vacuumed the whole thing. I vacuumed the bed, took all the sheets off the bed, got rid of my feather blanket, rearranged some furniture. It looks amazing. It's like step one. So now the room I'm recording the podcast in, the yellow room, we call it, it's our walkthrough, third, fourth bedroom. This is my next job. So right now, Jack and I sort of share the bedroom and this room. There are toys in both. There's my stuff in both. So it's just, it's just going to have to stay that way for a while. I'm just going to have to continue to sort of micro share these two rooms and use them for the, for these different things until we have our kitchen back. But it got me moving around. It got me physically moving my body and, and making visual progress, like folding laundry or shoveling snow. It's super helpful. But I do really firmly believe that the only way I'm going to do things is to just shut up and do them. And what I have to stop doing is running around, meeting the needs of other people and even though, even though it's doing things I love, I don't do anything that I don't enjoy. But I do think I have a hard time let go, letting go of certain things because I just do. Like I didn't want to stop working at VLAX and I don't even think about VLAX anymore. And it's not that I didn't love it. It took me the longest time to let it go. So I just think I need to let some things go or restructure them a bit. So after recording Motherland, the part of the story that stuck with me a lot and it hasn't. Normally I get caught up in my own reactions to finding out she wasn't going to wake up and all of the trauma and horrifying realities of those days and weeks in May of 2016. But I think of Gracie and, you know, she's 22 years old and I know that she worries so much about all of us and we are her family. We're all she has. I know that she has extended family. I know she has, has half siblings, but they aren't her family. They aren't anyone that has been a part of her life or her experience or that she relates to in that way. That's why I love connecting her with Eleanor because she and Eleanor are similar in their desire to have family. In my walking around and finding out, a, you know, finding a place to record this episode and rearranging, I came upon this book called Motherless Daughters. So I remember ordering it because I thought it was a bit more vague. I thought it was a book about people who felt like they didn't have mothers. And let me preface this by saying I love my mother and I know that she had a really, really rough life and for the most part has done the best that she can. But I have often felt motherless. And so I thought this book was, would relate, I would relate to it in that way. And really it's about women whose mothers have died. So my first thought when I got this book was my loneliness. I've been, I've been feeling lonely. The holidays are a really difficult time and we stopped doing anything around the holidays when Molly died and our social circle is weird. So we don't really have a social circle, quite honestly. So we don't get invited to things. And sometimes we don't get invited to things that are people that we see a lot. So Christmas caroling parties and, you know, all these sort of different things that are being done by people we know and spend time with happen and we see them on social media. Maybe I wouldn't even go. I don't know. But it, I felt this was a holiday season. That I felt very isolated. And I think it's because we were home and people aren't used to us being home. I don't think anyone isolates from us on purpose, but that's how I felt. So when I look at motherless daughters, I look at how sometimes I feel like I don't have a mother and I have one. And it reminds me of a saying that I've seen online about loneliness and how sometimes loneliness isn't being alone. It's being in a crowded room and feeling alone. And I think sometimes looking over my life, the amount of time I spent wishing I had a mother that was there for me. And my mother was there for me in a million ways. Some of the stories I think back on about my mother following me in the car in the middle of the night when she thought I was going to kill myself. She's been there for me, but there have also been times when I've had to be the mother and when I've had to be there for myself. And I think probably this is just part of life. But when I was looking through the table of contents, the titles of the chapters 
could be titles in so many different books. And it got me to thinking about where I'm at. So the seasons of grieving, okay, well, this is the holiday season, big fun one for grieving. Cause and effect, no way is the best way. I think sometimes in this pursuit of happiness, we think that we're supposed to be happy, but nowhere in any religious writing, in any philosophical idea, are we promised happiness. We're promised learning and discovery. We're promised both joy and tragedy. We are never promised just mundane happiness. And yet I think sometimes we just seek it. Learning how to let go. Hello, that would be me. <laughs> Looking for love, intimate relationships. I don't even want to go there right now. When a woman needs a woman, gender matters. In all that our culture is going through with understanding gender and when we need to be gender specific and when we don't, this is a tender one for me because I have, have had a very, very big love-hate relationship with men in my life. Life, death, sickness, health. The female phoenix. The daughter becomes a mother. So these are just, the. I have nothing to say about these chapters. I haven't read this book. But I looked at it. It caught my eye and I took it off the shelf. So I'm going to read this book. This will be my first book in my 75 hard where I have to read 10 pages a day. Back to Gracie and me as the mother. I remember as a little girl, my mother would always tell me that her big goal as a child was to grow up and be a good mother. I never had that goal. I was never going to be a mother. No, thank you. Being a mother is nothing I wanted to do. And so when I became pregnant with baby Gordy and went through that whole experience, that's what made me realize that I wanted to be a mother. And so I had Gracie and then Molly and then Jack, of course. I have a lot of conflict and guilt and, re and regret and remorse around my mothering of Gracie. You know, I, I became involved with Roy in 2009. Gracie was eight and Molly was six. They were little. They were 13 and 15 when Molly died. So that's their whole childhood. I remember feeling so detached from my mother because she looked like she was a million miles away. I felt most motherless when she was either away for a weekend, which typically meant she was with Tom and not with me, keeping me safe, or we'd be driving in the car and she'd be just looking so far away and she'd look so sad and I'd get really worried about her. And I have two stark memories of my life as a mother to Gracie. And one of them is I would go away to see Roy and I would come up with places that I was. I was at a conference. I was visiting Marty. I was, you know, visiting friends. I was, you know, I would come up with a, with a reason to be away. And I'd get home and Gracie and Molly would just miss me so much. Why do you have to go? We miss you. And I, and I can remember having this nudge, this tug in my stomach, because I remembered that feeling. And then the other one was when I lost my job and I was so sad and I couldn't, I couldn't function for months. It was 2011. And I remember Gracie coming into my room one morning and sobbing, breaking down into tears because I was so sad and she just missed me being happy and she didn't know what to do and how to make me happy. And both of these things have been prevalent in our grief journey. When I would disappear and wherever I would disappear to, whether it was Roy or Doug or whomever, after Molly died and the drugs and everything else, I would disappear. I'd be gone sometimes. And she'd just, you know, not know where I was. And, you know, she was swallowed up in her reality, but I was just gone to her. And then she would see me and staring off into space or crying and where are you and are you okay? And then she would need me. She would need me to make her feel better. And, and I couldn't even make myself feel better, let alone her. And then not feeling like she was enough and thinking it was her job to make me happy. So in this New Year's resolution, in this, in this all right, I'm done. I'm going to stop running around. I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I'm done having this crazy busy schedule where I have to get up at five, and you know, three in the morning to get anything done. It's crazy. I need to stop. 
Plus, I also want to give Jack a better me. I don't want him to always wonder where I am. I don't look at my phone anymore when I nurse him. Yeah, I still nurse him. He's almost three. He would knock it out of my hand. He'd take his foot and kick it. So now I just look at him. <laughs> I try to just be mindful. This morning is a good example. I, you know, I have the best laid plans. Kenny stay, you know, sleeps in. And so then by the time Jack wakes up, I've tried to accomplish things, but I, I used to just sit there angry that I was nursing Jack and not getting done what I need to get done. And now I'm like, you know what? He's going to have bad breath and hairy legs before I know it. I'm just going to enjoy this. Those things, all of that reality has to stop. I can't stand it. I can't stand it anymore. What am I afraid to peel away and look at? You know, is underneath Barb that worn down old, old wood floor with water damage? If yes, then so be it. Let me address the water damaged wood. Let me stop with the linoleum facade that is Barb and, and try to make it, try to really be here in a year from now and wonder how I ever, ever felt like this. That's what I want to do. That's what I'm going to do. Back to Gracie. So we spent Christmas here. You all know this because I've talked about it online ad nauseum. And so for Christmas, what I did for her was I filled a Vera Bradley bag like we do for Molly. And I filled it with all things that I thought she would like, just things to make her happy. And one of the things I got her was a journal. Gracie and Molly and I love journals. We start them, we don't finish them. And at the paper store where I, where I filled her Vera Bradley bag, they have all these different journals. And so I found one right away for me and it's called, okay, fine, I'm grateful. <laughs> it's hilarious. And basically every day, I'm, if you're watching, I'm showing you, is a place that you can write. And then there's a quote. So this one says, there's no place like home. That's today's quote. Every page is things to be grateful for or a gratitude quote. Here's an interesting Alanis Morissette quote. I opened up to this page. It's song lyrics. Thank you, India. Thank you, terror. Thank you, disillusionment. Thank you, frailty. Thank you, consequence. Thank you, thank you, silence. There's a thought provoker, don't you think? All right, I thank God for my failures. Maybe not at the time, but after some reflection. I never feel like a failure just because something I tried has failed. Dolly Parton, oh, Dolly. So this is my journal. And the purpose of this is to become grateful. But the, the front of it has this whole, if you're watching it, you probably can't see it at all, but it has this whole explanation of the journal, which I will read to you because it's funny. And I'll be slow and stumbly because I'm me. Okay, fine, I'm grateful. A journal to catapult me from my default position of griping and negativity to the long resisted stance of counting my blessings. Because it turns out that focusing on the positive actually might be better for my mind body and spirit in no small part because unhappiness is the gap between expectations and reality. So even though this whole gratitude thing feels like a bandwagon on the woo-woo train, the fact is that deep down, I'm ready to start looking at the roses rather than the thorns. And if you absolutely force me to admit it, I will say that in all actuality, I do have so very much to be grateful for. <laughs> so that's mine. Okay. So Gracie, my tender, sweet Gracie, who would flush the spiders down the toilet and she would visualize them in the sewer, sewage treatment plant with their friends, right? Gracie, sweet Gracie, kiss my knee. It's all better. It's going to be okay. This is the journal I got for her. So hers is the same. It's the same. It has a quote. Her quotes are around reassurance. If you are not happy, you had better stop worrying about it and see what treasures you can pluck from your own brand of unhappiness. <laughs> I actually like her quotes better than mine, but I think that's the whole point. You need the journal that you don't like the quotes. 
Life isn't fair. It's just fairer than death. That's all. <laughs> Make it work. So this is Gracie's journal. So it's going to be okay. I'll read you the front of hers. A journal to reassure myself when I'm overwhelmed by the creeping sense of impending disaster and the all-encompassing fears, both specified and vague, that colonize my mind, body, and soul, all of which, from the completely far-fetched to the sometimes probable, do me no good to contemplate and, in fact, make me miserable. And even though optimism may be the unself-aware and ill-placed, I know I'll be happier as a blind fool than as a clairvoyant apocalyptic. <laughs> wow. So that's hers. So when I saw these, I got one for myself. And when, when she opened hers, I went and got mine. And I said, look, I got this one for me. And I thought we could just journal together and see if we can finish the whole thing, like not stop writing in it until it's full and see if we can do it in a year. So we started early, a little bit ahead of January 1st. My desire for Gracie is to include her in some of the things that I'm doing, that we do them together. So A, we have some common goals that we share. And B, we're doing something that we can check in with each other so that she knows how much I love her. And that I want to be more than a mother that says the words and then continues to disappear. Whether I disappear while I'm sitting in the same room with her or whether I disappear because I have to go someplace away. It's just been difficult. I've had a really hard holiday season and, and I'm just to the point now where it's just like enough. If I'm going to gut my kitchen and redo it, then I need to gut my life. I need to gut myself. That sounds kind of gross, but you know, I look at how much I still think about all the Roy years and, and, and the Amy friendship. I think about it all the time, every day, those things were in my mind, losing my job, what it would be like if I were in my 30th year of teaching. I love teaching. I miss coaching. I miss timing indoor track meets. And am I living in the past and not letting go? Like, you know, I just, it's such a fine line between living, learning from your experiences and living in the past. You can't just put things in a box like it never happened. It doesn't work. But you also can't live back there and stay stuck in a place that isn't helpful. So this is me right now as I ramble round and round about this. So the part of motherland that sort of fits to this is the closing part of the book. Who can say? So there's a song and, and actually I'll read about it. I'm not even going to say it too much. Michaela Judge sang this song in Molly Be the Musical. And then the slideshow at the end, the first round of slides were to Taylor Swift's 22. And then that faded away. And it went into this song, Because I Knew You, for good. Who can say? But it's from Wicked, the musical Wicked. And so I have a hard time with that song because it makes me cry. And it makes me think of Molly, obviously. I also know that when Jack was a baby, I would drive to Amesbury to go to Momstrong, and he was teeny tiny in the car seat, that when he was crying back there, I would play this song and he'd stop crying. I could play a hundred other songs and he would not stop. This one made him stop. So there's something special about the song and the connection to Molly. The other thing is when I was recording Motherland, we decided ahead of time. So recording a book has a lot that goes into it. And I was really anxious and nervous about it because I knew I would need coaching. I would need support. I would need somebody to be able to say, slow down on that. A little more emotion. You're setting the stage. Take a breath. Like all the different things that go into reading a story accurately. And she's all of this. She's amazing. Her ear is amazing. So I told her some of these things are going to make me cry. What should we do about that? Should I try not to cry? So she said that I had to be authentic, just read. And if we had to re-record something, that's the beauty of recording. So we decided ahead of time that even if I started to cry, I would keep going. She wouldn't stop or interrupt me until I said, okay, let's take a break or something. 
So two or three times in the book, I, you know, my voice broke. I got, I got trembly, but it wasn't so much that we needed to take it out. So I'm excited about that because it'll be a very authentic read when people listen. So in terms of not just covering up the worn out water damaged wooden floor with the latest version of kitchen modern, right? Of really pulling it all up, getting right back to the bare bones, to what was put there in 1905 and putting on top of that what I want to walk on every day. That's me right now. So that's where this afterward comes in. So I've written the book, I've told the story, Jack is here, and this is how I end it. There's a song that accompanies the slideshow of Molly's pictures that my friend John made for the memorial. It's the closing number from the musical Wicked. The song is called For Good. And it's about how our lives are changed forever by the people we meet. Throughout the song, there's a question mark as to whether Glinda, the good witch of the North, has been changed for the better by her best friend, Alfie, the wicked witch of the West. Glinda asks whether she's been changed for the better. I like that. The ambiguity, the honesty of that feeling. There's an assumption that when hard things happen to us, we're meant to come out of them stronger and better and more enlightened. But the truth is, we might not, or we might not for a very long time. And even if we do, we might slide back again and become worse, worse even than before that thing happened, or that better might be tainted by something else in our life that isn't so good. Because life is messy and complicated, and sometimes it just hits us so hard that we feel like we can't get up again, and like nothing good could possibly come of it all. And that's okay. Having something horrible happen to us doesn't mean we have to become saints. <laughs> That's good. Some people are like that. Some people rise from the ashes like a phoenix, the tragedy saints. For most of us, becoming better because something bad has happened isn't even an option. Just getting through the day is hard enough. In musicals, it's different. In the song from Wicked, the lyrics do change. After the beautiful ambiguity of the first verses, the refrain switches from a question mark to the positive assertion. After everything she's been through, she believes that she has indeed been changed for the better. The message is clear, positive, optimistic, linear. At some point, all the hardship will turn good and we will come out of it all better and stronger. I get it. Musicals need happy endings. We need happy endings. As human beings, we crave hope. I crave hope too. And maybe, just maybe, Glinda has it right. That if we survive, if we make it through, we are changed for the better. And my suspicion is that even if Glinda is right, that we've changed for the better, it's more complicated than that too. When I look back at all the things that have happened in my life from my childhood of secrecy about abuse to subsequent abusive relationships with older men, my lifetime of addiction, the bad decisions I've made along the way, and ultimately my loss of Molly, I'd like to think that I've been changed for the better. I try to think that way, to be that way. I've certainly learned a great deal about myself and about the world because of everything I've been through. And for Molly, to honor her memory and her goodness, I try to do better, try to be better. But the words from the song that come back to me most are these. Who can say? Who can say? If I've been changed for the better. In other words, the beginning of the song feels more honest than the end. Because the truth of life, with all its pain and tragedy and hardship and messiness, 
and beauty and friendship and betrayal and love and loss is that we really don't know. We can't really say. We can just share our stories and stay open-minded and open-hearted and always keep learning and hope. Sure, always hope, but recognize that no one truly has the answers. It's a beautiful kind of paradox. Searching for answers is at the heart of what it means to be human. But that the only true answer we get from the universe, in my experience anyway, is that everything is a mystery. That neither the good bits nor the bad bits, the miracles or the tragedies, make much sense in the end. Or not from this side of death anyway. Maybe Molly was right when she envied Papa Gordy for passing away, because now he had all the answers. So we just must get on with the living and accept that sometimes we'll do something beautiful and miraculous, like having a baby at 57. And sometimes we'll get into our cars and drive to a tree in the middle of nowhere and scream our lungs out. And that both those things are in us, are us. And that's okay. Because that's who we are. Miserable and miraculous and broken and beautiful. And a mystery, always a mystery. I don't know what tomorrow will hold for me, for Kenny and Gracie and baby Jack. I'm not sure where Molly is right now or what she's doing. I don't know whether any of us could have prevented her death or what the purpose of her death was. I don't know how many more years I must live or how I should live them. And I don't know whether I've been changed for good by any of this. But I do know that I'll keep showing up in every way I know how and that I'll keep embracing the mystery, which I suspect is the hardest and most beautiful thing any of us can do. So that makes me cry. I just, after just having that conversation with Eric about what made the wood do this, we're looking at this wood that's worn in such a unique way. And what's the story behind it? We're never going to know. I can't go back in time. I can't ask that floor to talk to me. We can speculate and take what we know and project that onto the reality that we see in front of us, but I don't know. But I do know right now today on December 27th, something has to give. I'm the only one that can, that can control me. And so something has to give. So it's January 9th as you listen and watch me fight the tears. Next week's episode, I'll probably record it right after New Year. So I'll have a much clearer picture of what I'm doing. <laughs> and then the episode after that is my friend Jen and her wonderful thrift store at Concord High School. I'm excited about that. That'll be a good episode. Take a listen. I have two students on. And I think as adults, it's really important for us to continue to pay attention to current young people, because we all feel that way inside. <laughs> and then I'm not sure after that, I'm hoping to have more guests and, you know, really get this podcast out into the world even more so than it already is. So anyway, thank you for listening. It's interesting. I, <laughs> I need to trust the universe more. I just need to trust the universe more than I do. So be good to yourself as best you can be good to yourself. Even if being good to yourself is not being super bad, <laughs> be good to someone else, do something good for somebody else. That's always a, a way to feel better. And as always, in the words of my wonderful, wonderful friend, Bill Harbrick, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories as I love connecting with my listeners. If you would like to get to know Molly, head over to mollybfoundation.org to see what she is all about. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.